Welcome to Conversations. My name is Amy Adams. I'm the editor of Conscious Life Space and the broadcaster of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, Episode 3. Today joining me is Amber Gorley, the disobedient dietitian. In today's episode, we discuss looking outside the gut, food sensitivities and food as a trigger for inflammation, cooking from scratch, and the importance of a whole food diet, and much more. Before we get started, I just have one quick announcement. Did you know that Conscious Life Space offers a free course, Seven Days Towards Gratitude? You don't even have to sign up on the mailing list. That's crazy. Everyone makes you sign up on the mailing list, but not for this. It's a free course, free forever, given from me to you from the bottom of my heart. That's my way of expressing my gratitude to you for being here. Now let's get started. Uh, welcome, and thank you for joining me today on Conversations. Oh, thanks for having me, Amy. So I'd like you to just uh, introduce yourself momentarily and let people know where you're from and how long you've been doing this and what drove you to uh, become the disobedient dietitian. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I am over here in Northeast Tennessee, um, sort of the, if you look at the state, we're the very tip, that's where I'm located. And as you mentioned, I am a dietitian. I have a master's um, in nutrition as well as being a uh, certified leap therapist and a certified diabetes educator. I've been studying nutrition for over 10 years, practicing um, for about five and how did you come up with your name for the disobedient <laughs> dietitian? Because I just, I just love it. I think it's so clever and it, it you know, I would want to call you and be like, okay, I need help. You know, I, I would pick you first because <laughs> I like this kind of rebellious, uh, I, I love that. I just love it. I think it's wonderful. So, uh, really great question. Of course, my, my husband actually came up with the name I was brainstorming. Um, I'd had a pretty whole hum business name before, and you know, I was looking to change and do some new branding. And you know, we're sitting actually in this kitchen and, and chatting back and forth. He's like, Well, you're not a normal dietitian. Like, when people think of dietitians, they think of meal plans in the hospital and mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe even my plate and USDA guidelines. And he's like, You don't operate that way, you look at everyone very uniquely and individually, and you, know, you don't follow those set rules. And he's right because, well, number one, rules are made to be broken. <laughs> and two, um, the rules don't work for everyone, right? You can't take a, a standard government guideline and apply that to a million plus people. We, our bodies just don't work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really great too, because we are all unique and we all have different things. We have different, uh, heritages too with gene sets and everything. So this is something that's, that's really interesting. I, I really love it. Now you have a website and you can pretty much now with the way that the world is going, you can offer your services online, right? I mean, do you yes. work with some people that are outside of your uh, immediate area? Well, it's a good question. And I do offer virtual services. It really, um, depends on where they're located. So mm -hmm. 
as far as borders, lines, licensure laws, um, I have worked with clients um, all across the world. It just, like I said, it really depends on their unique situation. Um, I'm always happy to talk to someone. I, you know, 30 minutes of my time, absolutely free. And if for whatever reason, whether it be um, legalities, whether it be service-based, you know, maybe they can't do some of the labs and stuff we'd like to do, I always am happy to help people find a really good provider uh, that might be a better fit. So, you know, I always welcome the conversation, but I'm also very cognizant of um, lots of the other things that go into working virtually as well. Right, right. So um, you also have a Facebook group too, though, where you uh, offer advice and um, you have discussion amongst people, right, with uh, their different kinds of problems that they face. And I also noticed that you had posted some recipes and things too, which is really great. And I, I actually had to laugh because um, you you had mentioned in one of the recipes about Brussels sprouts and uh, about, or one of the articles maybe about people not liking certain things. Now I don't like green vegetables in general. I mean, that's just my own personal little weird quirk. Um, I like all the other colored vegetables, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, I just, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's great that you're offering alternatives to people of ways that they can uh, do different things. But now what, what is it that you said that you think that sometimes people, why do you think that, uh, that maybe they, they think they don't like something, but they do? Yes. So <laughs> Uh, I actually taught, yes, it totally made sense, totally makes sense. I, I taught cooking classes for uh, quite a number of years, actually, and, and so I, this isn't just, you know, ah. a thought, this is definitely something that I've proven. Um, in America, the art of cooking is becoming lost, right? We don't have home ec classes anymore. Our parents, um, you know, I'm the latchkey generation, right? Our parents were out working, mm -hmm. we were having TV dinners, and, and then we, of course, became scared of fat, um, in the 90s as well. And so we started taking all of that out of our, our cooking. In fact, when I was in graduate school, you know, um, beans and cornbread are really popular in the South. And they're, you know, teaching us, you know, you don't put a little bit of fat back in there. Well, are you telling me that one inch cube of fat back that gives so much flavor is the worst thing we can eat? Of course not. Uh -huh. um, and so we've, we've just taken all of the joy out of food and either we're overcooking it to death, right? Remember the gray broccoli from grade school? Of course, no one's going to like that. Or we're throwing a steamer bag in the microwave and we're not putting any flavor on it. Um, and so there's a million and one ways to cook broccoli. Maybe you don't like it steamed. Maybe you like it in a soup. Maybe you like it roasted. Um, and so it's really playing around with, with different cooking techniques um, and bringing some fat into our dishes maybe bringing in a little bit of sweetness like maple syrup um, to really, you know, bring those tastes together and make a really good uh, vegetable dish. And that art, I think, is just one, becoming lost, and two, a lot of the health messages out there have been, you don't cook with those things because they're bad. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, and we kind of move from like one fad to another. So one week you hear, don't drink coffee. One week, don't drink <laughs> wine. Or the next week, drink a glass of wine. And then the next week, no fat or only this kind of fat and no, uh, yeah, it's just, it's kind of crazy. So when you had said that when people um, come to you, you, ha you start with uh, something called the uh, mediator release test. Now, what is that? <clears throat> so that is something that I do often like to lead with. Um, we hear a lot that our health starts in the gut. You've probably heard that. Mm -hmm. And that's true to an extent, but sometimes 
we need to step it back a little bit further and actually consider about what is outside of our gut. And what I mean by that is what are the foods that we're consuming, um, you know, and of course, sleep, lifestyle, and stress. And when it comes to the foods that we're eating, it can be really hard to really identify what may be causing a, a reaction, whether it be a food allergy or a food sensitivity or a food intolerance. And the mediator release test is a, a really laser focused test that sort of hones in on food sensitivities. So we're not looking at allergies, which are the ones that we consider to be life threatening, uh -huh. um, but these are food sensitivities, the things that often um, may be the underlying cause of some of our issues like joint pain <laughs> um, or migraines or IBS, but can be really difficult to identify. And that test looks at what may be causing um, inflammation related to it. So you were saying that it's the food sensitivities versus um, allergies, and that can actually be the cause of what we have inflammation or other kinds of diseases, right? Like irritable bowel syndrome. That is, I mean, those are, that's a disease, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and then even like fibromyalgia or any, any kind of disease, it could be uh, from food. It could definitely be um, a trigger. So I uh -huh. definitely have worked with individuals that have IBS and fibromyalgia. Those are two really good examples. And most people that I work with through this process have a reduction in symptoms anywhere from 50 to 75% within 30 days. And literally the only thing we're changing is the foods that they're consuming. Now, that being said, for some people, there's still more work um, because there's a reason that food was a trigger to begin with. And so if you can sort of figure out, you know, what that trigger was, is it uh, a compromised gut? Is it, um, you know, the microbiome is out of balance? Is that the liver not functioning properly? So once you can go in and, and you calm the inflammation, then you can really, you know, dig a little bit deeper and, um, you know, hopefully uh -huh. stop some of those leaks and, and actually fix them instead of plugging them. Do you think that if somebody ha starts to have some kinds of symptoms that, I mean, I guess, I think my question is, do you think that people wait too long sometimes to get help? And if you could address also, when they come to you and they get your help, do some people not follow up with it? I mean, I, I guess, the, so it's kind of two parts. One, so, you know, if you want to just uh, touch on either one of those. So. Sure. So the, uh, to answer your first question, there is definitely truth to the saying, the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of changing. Mm -hmm. um, and so for many people, you know, we may have symptoms that we can live with um, and, and it's not worth giving up our favorite foods. Um, that's a very real thing. There's also a lack of awareness and knowledge. Our medical community isn't necessarily the best with um, keeping up with you know, the cutting edge. It can be a little slow and a little old school. And so I, I definitely talk to a lot of people. They're like, oh my God, like I, I never knew that food could really be a trigger because no one's ever taught them or educated them. Um, and so there's that as well, right? It's sort of a two-prong um, issue. And then um, as far as following up, I operate a little bit differently than some providers because when I work with someone, it, it is a commitment. Um, it's a commitment to their health. It's a commitment to their well-being. And I actually no longer offer uh, one-off appointments because I do want people to generally get better. And, and those are the people that you know, I want to work with that are committed to working with me for three to six months to really get the outcomes 
if I was to take someone's money for, for one session, to me, that's almost unethical because there's no way that they're going to get where they want to go in one session. Mm-hmm. It is a longer journey. I was thinking about this because when I had, uh, I let, quit smoking and then I also entered menopause and that my whole body changed and it did seem like everything was very rapidly and in some ways it was, but kind of looking back, things were kind of creeping up step by step and, you know, I was ignoring probably some of the <laughs> symptoms too because you didn't really you don't really uh, notice something sometimes until it does get uh, bad. But um, yeah, and all of a sudden I seemed like, oh, I gained some weight and I had inflammation and and this kind of thing, but probably it was was all happening um, for a longer period of time. It's just that all of a sudden when your clothes don't fit you anymore, then you notice. <laughs> or, or you have, you know, too many headaches or some other kind of, uh, or you just over, you know, too many days where the, the days of not feeling well start to take over the days of uh, feeling better. Now, do you have clients uh, that are of all different ages that come to you? Or is there more like a common or a larger group of people that come to see you? Um, I see women all sorts of of ranges as far as age. Um, I have worked with pediatrics and teens in the past. That's definitely an area where I would say I I don't do as much work anymore. Most women are 30 to 50 probably. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to be sort of the sweet spot when all the, all the crap hits the fan uh, physically, so to speak. (laughs) Um, You know, I am, I am seeing a very unfortunate trend where women in their late teens or their late twenties, you know, are, are developing one or more autoimmune diseases and and they're young, right. And they're, they're looking on the barrel of the next 30, 40 years thinking, I I can't live this way. Mm -hmm. I, um, I do work with men. Um, I, I certainly have worked with men in the past, but I, Obviously, if you look at my website, my branding isn't very uh, masculine focused, but uh, I do occasionally <laughs> get a guy that will that will call me and say, you know, I've, I've run out of options and uh, came across your site. Can you help me? So do you think when uh, people run out of options, it's because mostly they go to a doctor and the doctors aren't really equipped to deal with uh, the kinds of, I mean, and the reason why I'm asking you this too is because uh, the disease fibromyalgia was something that wasn't even, I'm not even sure that it still is, but it's something, I remember some people telling me that they had it. And I, you know, when I first learned about it uh, several years ago, and uh, it wasn't recognized by the medical community. And so here was a whole population of people that were suffering from something and they all had the same symptoms, but they were being ignored. Or do people come to you as like a last resort or do they come to you as uh, an initial kind of thing or it, or it depends? Um, a little bit of both, but primarily it's a last resort. Um, I actually have worked with many people who have even asked their doctors for referrals to a dietitian who have been refused, which um, really blows my mind. Um, and of course, in all fairness, I don't think a lot of doctors really understand the breadth and scope of, of what uh, you know, I can do. That being said, our medical system is very archaic um, in the way that it, it operates. It's still very much built on the foundation of a 1900 society uh, versus 2018. And it takes about 18 years for new research to trickle its way into medical schools and into practice. And for diseases like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, that's a really big issue because 
um, there are these, these populations of women and men as well who are having very real symptoms yet being told it's in your head, these don't exist, it's all made up, it's all fabricated. Um, and so, you know, again, these, these are the women that come to me and, and the men too who say, like, this is not in my head. I don't need a, a diagnosis to go to the psychiatrist. Like, I need real help. Yeah, and a psychiatrist, I mean, maybe talk therapy could help, but also it seems like there seems to be an epidemic too with uh, medication. And this, you don't even, if you go to psychiatrists, you're not even actually getting the talk therapy. You're just getting a prescription a lot of times, which is not necessarily a good direction to take. Um, which can aggravate your body even more. It can. And, and over here, at least in my area of the United States, there is actually a shortage of mental health um, providers. And so uh -huh. it, that's an even bigger issue, right? Because now you have a population of people that have a real issue. They're getting sent to a psychiatrist. They can't even get sent to the psychiatrist to, to get an evaluation. And sometimes the psychiatrist will send them back to the medical community and say, you're not mentally ill. But there's that, that uh, stopgap, if you will, of these people sort of lost in no man's land because there's nowhere for them to go. And then to even have that kind of doubt or to, to not be believed, because I think people really actually, I mean, like we were saying, sometimes we ignore some of our symptoms, but we think essentially people know what's going on inside and they might not know what the cause is or how to fix it, but the very real pains when you have like perpetual headaches or you have stomach pains or you have digestive problems. I mean, I think people are pretty self-aware and when they do go to the doctor, I've actually read a lot about this too, where and not just with the fibromyalgia, but even other things too, that um, even the idea of people having some parasites and things too, because we don't all have the best cleanest water systems and even when we do not everybody washes their hands and viruses spread and different things happen i mean it's normal that these things happen and then but they just say oh no 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 that you know you don't have that that doesn't exist you, you know you, yeah. you live in a developed country well so yeah that's that's actually a really great point um one of the people that came to me actually was a gentleman was diagnosed with ibs and i often tell people that a diagnosis is really just another symptom um, ibs is a really good example of that it's a symptom of something else going on and he was one that had asked his gi doctor for a referral um, to a dietitian and was refused mm -hmm. and he sought me out on his own we did um some some uh stool testing um, uh -huh. and actually did find out he had a parasite and uh, this particular gentleman had grown up in Florida, in the Florida waters, and the parasite that he had was a waterborne parasite. Um, mm -hmm. Yet he was dismissed over and over and over and basically discharged from his GI saying, there's nothing more we can do for you. You know, it's in your head. Um, yeah. Yeah, here's the physical proof, it's not in his head. <laughs> I know that on your website you had uh, focus on um, meal preparation as being important as an important aspect of our diet and actually taking the time to prepare food. And I actually, I love to cook. So, I mean, I, I live by myself, so I do. And when people come over, I like to invite people over for dinner and then it's kind of fun to cook. But for myself, I'm a little bit lazy sometimes, but I do notice that I feel better when I take time to prepare meals during the week like you were saying earlier that uh, people aren't cooking as much or they took fat out and so they don't really like it. So do you think that a lot of people like to go out to eat more? Um, is that like something more common now or do you think that's bad for you? Um, I mean, I think if you ate McDonald's every day, it would probably be bad for you, but, 
<laughs> but I mean, in general, like the kind of takeout culture. We definitely have gotten to the point where we are eating out more and more. And while, you know, that you can occasionally find some good options eating out, um, it's become more of what's perceived to be a convenience. Um, you know, I'm running late, so I'm going to stop by McDonald's. Um, and there's a couple of issues there. One is, you know, you're going to spend five to 10 minutes in the McDonald's drive-through. You can make something at home, right? It's that mindset uh, mentality of marketing that it's quicker and faster. Uh -huh. And then two is affordability. I uh, hear a lot that it's, it's just too expensive to cook at home or to cook healthy food. And again, that's really just not the case. The, the issue again is we've taken the, that home ec piece out of our education system. We don't teach people how to shop on a budget. We don't teach people how to cook from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, am, I am all about, you know, food stamps for low income and, and low, um, you know, those families. I think it's a wonderful program. Here's what people don't realize. The food stamp program is built on scratch cooking. It is built on buying groceries, coming home and cooking from scratch. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it from that perspective, it is very affordable and you, you can really utilize those dollars really, really well and smart. But we've taken that education piece out of our system and that's where we're failing. Right. So people don't even know how to do it. So they kind of get overwhelmed. I could see how that happens, actually. I mean, I, it's kind of interesting, too, because I think and that's been a slow and steady change. I mean, there was the home ec uh, classes before, but even uh, my mom, and uh, she used to buy frozen vegetables, uh, which was because I was a latchkey kid too. And uh, it was easier to buy frozen vegetables. And I remember I thought, oh, I, I don't like carrots, cooked carrots. I thought they were terrible because I was only having frozen uh, bagged carrots. And then um, later on, uh, I met my uh, now former husband, but um, <laughs> back then, um, his grandmother used to cook all the time. And, and um, she would make the most delicious carrots. And I said, you know, when I went there to have dinner, they said, oh, try the carrots. And I was like, no, I didn't really like <laughs> carrots. And then I tried them and I was like, oh my God, they're like so wonderful. Like I've never, but she was cooking from the time, all the time she cooked for the, uh, for them every single day. And she made these delicious carrots and delicious everything, rice pudding and all kinds of different things that really were, I, and I think kind of looking back on it too, you could eat very well and they weren't really expensive. I mean, you could buy a bag of carrots and you can make a lot of things with carrots, carrot soup and uh, the delicious carrots. But you know, in my mind, it was like these frozen things. So I didn't like a lot of things, but yeah. I didn't even know how to actually prepare carrots just because my mom was, even though my mother knew all, she knew how to cook, you know, but it was just like this kind of convenience thing. And then I think that just kind of got, and then the microwave came out too. So it's just this kind of like the slow and steady pace where we've kind of switched over. Um, so unless you kind of start to cook yourself and learn it, it's, it's difficult. Hmm. Yes. So do you think though, with uh, people who are, don't, uh, really have a high budget too though are there certain foods that could give um, I mean not just low budget but for I mean for anyone but especially I guess for low budget um, I mean is there something that 
because I know too, like maple syrup is kind of expensive and I know that's a good food for, for you. Or um, there's some other kinds of foods that are ex more expensive. So maybe if you're on a low budget, you might not want to uh, get them because it, you know, you have a family and you, it seems like a luxury. Is there some kind of like a couple of foods, like superfoods or some kinds of things that you would recommend for people to buy? Um, so, you know, I, I still am trying to figure out how I feel about the term superfoods. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a love-hate relationship with the term because the reality is there are some foods that are a bit more nutrient dense than others, um, mm -hmm. you know, have some, some powerhouse uh, things in them like, uh, you know, salmon, for example, wild-caught salmon. Um, but by focusing on those superfoods, we tend to think that one or two items is going to get us everything we need. And that's uh -huh. where I see the issue. And so what I recommend or what I encourage people is one, always shop within your budget. So, you know, if you can't afford organic, that's who cares, okay? Buy whole foods. And if that's, you know, conventionally grown, spinach, carrots, potatoes, whatever, you're, you're, you're doing great. Um, there's a lot of, I think, societal pressure on this yuppie or organic type of, of food, and we can feel less than, right, if we can't do that. You know, we can, we can let go of that. If farm-raised fish is in your budget, farm-raised fish it is. Um, right. That being said, the more color, the better. Um, so if you could get your reds, your yellows, your purples, um, that's important. Most of us do well with uh, greens. Um, that actually tends to be one we get more often where many of us are lacking are in the purples and the yellows and the oranges. So mm -hmm. you know, incorporating that could be purple cabbage, right? That's a super cheap um, item. Purple grapes um, can be an option. And then, of course, meat looking for as healthy of a meat as you can afford. That could be, you know, good quality local eggs. Um, if you can't afford something like grass fed beef or um, you know, salmon occasionally, again, you know, I do recommend wild caught and um, farm raised if you can afford it. But if you can't, you know, that lean meat is still a great option. Um, and you should not in any way feel um, less than for not being able to afford some of those more expensive items. How yeah. does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember I actually, there was a Whole Foods where I used to live. And um, I remember there were certain things that I would buy there that I couldn't get anywhere else, but I tried not to buy regular groceries there because it was very, very expensive. I mean, just by virtue of being whole foods and the label organic, it's actually kind of, um, I read an article recently about that too. It was basically saying like, why is it that we're, you know, not making healthy, healthier foods accessible? It's like a luxury item, which kind of seems crazy but so I mean everybody should have access to good food that that's right. so I mean instead of paying you know four dollars for some peaches then you know just because it says organic on it and and well then there's the whole other thing too where some of the things aren't really organic when they say they're organic so this probably doesn't make me the, the most popular dietitian in my community because I sort of straddled the fence on this um but you know, organic, there's still chemicals on organic food. And a lot of people do not realize that there are chemically treated organic foods. And that may or may not be better than our conventional foods. Um, it's really, you know, 
organics and industry. And that's what people forget. Organic is a business and an industry. And Michael Pollan has some really great views on that. And, and I encourage anyone that's interested to, to read his stuff. But obviously there are some foods that are a little bit more susceptible to soaking up some of the pesticides like strawberries. Um, and if, right. if that's a real concern for someone, the uh, dirty dozen um, is a good list to, to look at and uh, sort of go by. So we could talk all day about organic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I do have another question though, actually, cause you mentioned Michael Pollan. So what about, uh, how do you feel about um, genetically modified food? Cause some people argue and say, well, when we cross uh, breed certain things, that's genetically modifying things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the modifying foods with not you know crossing two things to make a new pretty flower or a combo kind of you know i forget what they're called but they're like these weird looking peaches and um hybrids yeah yeah like something like that that i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the like the corn or the fish or the things like that i just so i'd love to get your feedback on that just briefly i mean i know we don't have this all day <laughs> but, so. oh, that's a tough one that's a tough one um, so again, my, my view here is going to be a little bit straddling the fence. Um, one, I honestly don't know that we have enough research. I just don't know that we have enough research. And if you listen to both sides, it's both political, right? Um, there's a lot of agendas involved in all of the research coming out. And so I always try to be cognizant of that. My, my philosophy when it comes to food and life in general, unless someone is, is truly, um, sick or has a condition is whole foods, you know, 90, 95% of the time. And, you know, we soy corn that are those genetically modified ingredients, you're actually just not going to be eating them as much if you're focusing on, you know, all those other wonderful things. And then, you know, the, the five or 10% of the time that you come in contact with those, if there is some, some harm, it's really going to be very minimal because it's not the majority of your diet where I, my personal belief that society is, is having some struggle is that the, that the wheat, soy, and corn are making up, you know, 75% of our diet. So is it the genetic modification of those ingredients? I don't know. Is it the overconsumption of those ingredients in general? I don't know. But I do know there's an issue with the amount of those that we eat, regardless of whether they're GMO or not. Now, what about this trend with like, uh, because this came up, uh, about gluten-free? Is that um, something that is that do you think a big deal because people are over consuming like the corn and the flour and this kind of thing? Is that why gluten has become so popular? I mean, I never really heard of it growing up. And then in the last, I don't know, however many years now it's been a thing, but <laughs> I still, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, maybe I should worry about it, but I, I don't really know really exactly what that means. Oh, that's also a really good question. So this is also sort of a chicken and the egg, right? Um, which came first? Did the issues come first? And then the gluten came after? Did the gluten cause the issues? Um, and it is also falls into that that fat or trend category as well. So it, it tends to to get really messy when you start talking about this, especially in medical communities. Um, <clears throat> There is definitely more and more evidence that gluten can be inflammatory, um, especially for some people that are genetically predisposed to um, developing certain diseases. You know, maybe genetically they have a predisposition to, to celiac. They don't have full-blown celiac, but maybe they are, you know, beginning to have um, some signs and symptoms. Or I certainly have seen gluten be an issue for people with fibromyalgia. Um, uh -huh. So. 
I do, I do truly believe that for some people, there are um, some, some very real sensitivities to gluten. Uh, for everyone, you know, probably not. Uh, it's not a blanket, rec I don't make blanket, blanket recommendations. It's always a case by case, um, you know, let's take it out. We can always add it back in and then we'll know for sure. Uh, you, you just don't know until you start playing around. Okay. So my final question <laughs> is, um, do you have any like a tip or something that could, um, or whether it be a, like a book recommendation or just a dietary recommendation, any kind of tip for the listeners to help them um, in their quest for a healthier diet? I do. I do. Actually, I'm going to go a little bit broader than healthier diet and go with life, life healthier life. Um, and the reason for that is I see people trying to jump five steps ahead. Um, they, they don't feel good. They've gotten to where the pain is, you know, intolerable. They want to change, but they're trying to, you know, they're leapfrogging into genetic testing and um, super expensive hormone testing. And, and there can be a place for that, but we need to remember that everything starts with a foundation and our health is no different. And so focus on the foods you're eating, um, focus on the variety, focus on more fruits and vegetables and don't overlook um, stress management and sleep. Those three things when addressed can actually make a significant change to your health. Um, and too often I see people skipping those steps and wanting to um, leapfrog and, yeah. and you just can't, you can't. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today in my uh, podcast conversations. Yeah. I was really happy to uh, meet you and talk with you about all of these things. I know that people are definitely going to learn so much by listening to this uh, broadcast. So thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today for episode three with my guest, Amber Gorley, the disobedient dietitian. I really enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope you did too. If you want to learn more, check out the show notes at ConsciousLife.Guru, our Conscious Life Space website. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast feed and our YouTube channel. You can also find us on Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. Until next time, take care. <music>